Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Turn with me to today's passage, this evening's passage, which you'll find in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. We're reading through to chapter 8, verse 10. You'll find that in page 843 of the Church Bible, or if you have a large print, it's 1002, which I think, ironically, I can't read that. So Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And from there, he, that is Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. 
And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's sing our next praise together. Jesus shall take the highest honor. Jesus shall take the highest praise. Yes, every week, small ones, big ones, dirty ones, scruffy ones, ungroomed ones, young ones, old ones, yappy ones, deaf ones, hungry ones, thirsty ones. Every single Sunday, morning and evening, the doors are open for dogs to come running in into the warmth of the inside. And even better than that, they're allowed to meet other dogs. And there's also food, a meal in fact, something for them to sink their teeth into, to chew over. Now before you come rushing back here next week with your pups and pitches and uh, think that there's a pet service, and I have to explain myself to David, I'm not in fact talking about your four-legged friends. Rather, this is the language used of this woman in the first part of our passage today. And it's language used to to mark her from where she has come from. In fact, that's one of the the key things Mark is doing here in this story and in the two stories that follow. Look at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Verse 31, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And the end of the section, verse 10 And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. That is, they have now moved away from the Gentile area. It's very easy to to gloss over the geography in this passage. But but Mark is trying to communicate something to us here. He's trying to tell us that in these episodes we are in Gentile land. He wants us to see that we are encountering a rather different group of people than who we saw in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we had this collision between the Pharisees and Jesus. And at the heart of the issue was chapter 7, verse 14, that the Pharisees did not understand that nothing from outside a person by going into them could defile them but that rather it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. The Pharisees saw, some, saw sin as something out there rather than something in here. They saw the washing of the outside of the cups, of the pots as essential. They elevated their own traditions and doing so, they were rejecting and leaving the commandments of God. But here, in in the second half of chapter 7, 
And the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus is surrounded by the very people that the Pharisees would turn their noses up. The very people they saw as dirty, as unclean. And so here's three points for you this evening to, to help us to see what Mark is trying to show us. And then we'll do some application at the end. So number one, dirty and humble. Number two, death and singing. Number three, hunger and satisfaction. So number one, dirty and humble. So Jesus arrives in the region of Tyre and he enters into a house. And as we've seen before, he he wants to be hidden and yet he could not. In fact, as soon as he's through the door, the the bell is ringing, the woman's at the door. And, And as it creaks open, the woman comes falling down at his feet. She is desperate, and the reason is because her little daughter is is being plagued by an unclean spirit, verse 25. And and her maternal instincts are are clear to see, aren't they? She's wanting the best for her daughter. And and that's what's driven her to begging, verse 27. And as we touched upon earlier, in this part of Mark's gospel, we have come to Gentile land, not Jewish land. And Mark is is really drilling this home to us here. Look at verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. It's like he's writing it in bold and, and underlining it and underlining it again. This woman is not a Jew. And that is significant in Jesus' response to her. It's a really rather provocative response, don't you think? Verse 27, let the children, that is the Jews, be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That is her, the the Gentiles. Now, we live in a bit of a dog uh, crazy society, don't we? You know, people love their dogs. They buy jackets for their dogs, they buy birthday presents. Some dogs even have more beds in their house than people do. But even if you were the most dog-obsessed person in the world, I don't think you would be taking it as a compliment if you were called one. It's not a compliment, is it? No, this is provocative language. But it is appropriate language. It's appropriate language for the human condition that we saw last week. Look at what it was that comes out of the heart of man. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. We've all used the phrase or or heard someone use the phrase, I'm only human, haven't we? You know, we do something and, and we realize we're in the wrong or, or someone doesn't live up to a standard that they set. And, and what is the response? Well, I, I know that wasn't great, but I, I'm only human after all. You know, it, it slips off the tongue and, and everyone moves along about their days. But it is not true, is it? It's not a Christian idea. Because back in the garden, before the fall, there was true humanity. 
everything was very good. It was a world without sin and pain and suffering and problems. It was true humanity. But ever since Genesis 3 and sin entering the world, we have been on the road to destruction, refusing to worship and honour God whose image we bear. Our foolish hearts have been darkened and we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Our actions, our thoughts, our words have, have made us less human. But we're tempted to believe the opposite. Not only just when we make mistakes do, do we say that or hear that, but, but when we're tempted to sin as well. We're, we're often made to believe that we're missing out on what it means to be human by not participating in it. You know, your, your work colleague tells you all about the winnings they made at the weekend betting on the football. They, they tell you how exciting it is, the, the adrenaline that it provides. They tell you about the benefits of a big winning. Or your university friends, they don't understand why you're not going out and getting drunk or sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Don't you know you're missing out? Wasting your university experience? Friends, sin, rejecting God's laws, never ever makes you more human. Only ever makes you less. Sometimes even animal-like. And did you notice that in this woman's answer, there is a recognition of this? Luke, verse 28. Notice she, she doesn't act appalled by this. You know, she, she's not horrified by the language that Jesus has used. No, look at how she responds. She's razor sharp in her response, isn't she? Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This woman, like all smart dogs, know that at dinner time there is always a chance for a second helping of food. Now, growing up, we, we had a cocker spaniel. Her name was Chloe. And she was always there when food was about. You know, she didn't usually have much interest at the dinner table. But as soon as we stood up, she was in go mode because that meant the dishwasher was about to be opened. And that was the best part of Chloe's day. Four paws up on the door making a beeline with her tongue for the dinner plates. She was in dreamland. Anything that was left behind was gobbled up. She knew that she wasn't going to get a seat at the table, but the dishwasher was fair game. And the woman's response is similar. Notice her humility. She, she recognizes that she is not one of the children she recognizes that she doesn't have the right to the bread. And so she begs for the crumbs. It's a deep humility, isn't it? This is a woman who recognizes that the problem is not out there in the world, like the Pharisees thought. But she recognizes that it's deep inside of us. And as the children earlier in chapter 7 are, are wasteful of their bread, the bread that in chapter 6 left the crowd satisfied, 
there is crumbs for the outsider. And so verse 29, Jesus said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. She is dirty, but she's humble. And the Lord Jesus shows her mercy and grace. That was point number one. So point number two, the death and singing. So now, as as the woman departs, so too does Jesus, verse 30, as he returns from the region of Tyre, going through Sidon. And it's actually a roundabout way of going because Sidon is in the north of Tyre and then he makes this journey southeasterly to, to the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Decapolis. Now, if you're thinking we've been here before, then don't worry, you're not losing it because we have journeyed to the Decapolis back in chapter 5 where we met the demon-possessed man. And we finish that episode with the locals begging for Jesus to depart from their region. And the formerly demon-possessed man was proclaiming to his friends about how much the Lord had done for him. And clearly, he's, he's had a bit of joy in his evangelism, hasn't he? Because as we arrive back in the Decapolis, people are eager to see him. Now, there are some similarities here in this miracle that we've seen previously in Mark's Gospel. You know, we've seen miracles done privately before. We've seen Jesus charging people not to tell anyone about them. But the description of this miracle is is rather unusual. I mean, just look how immensely detailed it is, verse 33. You've got putting his fingers in his ears, spitting and touching his tongue. And it's emphasized again in the results and the response, verse 35, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. In verse 37, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, I want you to keep these uh, details in mind for next week because we're going to come to a very similar event next time in Mark's Gospel. But today, for now, I just want us to see how powerful the grace of God is here. For look how hopeless the situation of this man is here. I don't think we come across a man just as hopeless as this one anywhere else in Mark's Gospel. Verse 32, he is deaf and he has a speech impediment. And he can't even bring himself to Jesus, can he? No, verse 32, the day of verse 32, bring him, and they beg Jesus to lay his hand on him. Here he is in the most awful of plights, and he can't even beg for himself. He's utterly helpless, and he's a picture of each and every one of us without Christ. Utterly helpless, wallowing in the mire of our own sin. Ears spiritually shut and eyes blinded to the beauty of Christ. And only by Jesus come here, coming close to the death, do they hear and the mute speak and understand who he is. And they're remarkable, those words from, from Gentiles, aren't they? Those who are not God's people. In a book up to now, we're 
No one's really seemed to grasp who Jesus is. And yet they're almost singing the Old Testament to us. You know these words from Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Friends, if you are a Christian this evening, you are not a Christian because you chose God, or because he saw anything good in you that deserved saving No, you are a Christian because Jesus came and he is in the business of unblocking deaf ears. Looking on to our final point this evening before we turn to some application, hunger and satisfaction. And we come to another rather familiar looking scene with the feeding of the 4,000 In fact, most of the details are are largely the same as the one we saw back in chapter 6. We're in a a desolate place, verse 4. We've got a focus on the 12 here. We've got loaves and fish, verse 5 and 7. We've got a crowd being directed to sit down, verse 6. We've got a blessing and a prayer for food, verse 7. And at the end of it, all who ate were satisfied, verse 8. So the question is, what is actually different about this event? Why has Mark included it in his gospel here? Well, liberal scholars, they'll want to tell you that it's just an error. You know, clearly someone has uh, told the same story twice. They've miscalculated the numbers in one of them, and we've got two. Well, here's what I think they're failing to notice. The significance of this feeding is it's done in Gentile land. Back in chapter 6, we saw that Jesus' compassion for the crowd was, was very much dressed up in Israel language. His reason for the, his compassion back in the first feeding was because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's very Israel language, isn't it? But it's not the same here because we are in Gentile lands. The compassion is because they have been with him three days now and, and have nothing to eat. Now, if you remember back a few weeks ago, we, we saw that the feeding of the 5,000 was a, a big reminder of the exodus to those who wit- witnessed it, of God's great rescue of his people. It was a great reminder of his rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and delivering them out. And now we we have this big exodus reminder, but this time it's done for the Gentiles. It's It's a great exodus reminder for the 12 done among Gentiles. So, So why has Mark included this in his gospel? What is Jesus doing here? Well, here is Jesus saying that the big exodus rescue he's bringing is for the Gentiles too. It's remarkable, isn't it? The children who were to be satisfied first. 
He said to the woman, and then the dogs. And now we see just how generous Jesus will be. It's not just crumbs that you get, is it? But it's loaves and full satisfaction. The Gentiles have the same sin problem as the Jews and Jesus' overflowing mercy and grace is the same for the outsiders too. Now as we finish, I want to help us think about the, the so what then. You know, what difference does this make to us as disciples of Jesus? Well firstly, I think one of the things that Mark is surely telling us is that there is no one, no one in this world that doesn't need this gospel. You know, think of the most self-dependent, successful, high-flying person you know. As you picture them, do you know that they are as helpless as the deaf and mute man? You know, think of the happiest non-Christian you know, who always seems positive and doing well. Well, they are actually starving and need satisfied. It's not often how it looks, is it? But it's true. There is no one you know who does not need this gospel. Now, now perhaps you aren't a Christian this evening and are coming along wanting to know more about this Jesus. Well, here's what Jesus wants you to see. He wants you to see that you're unclean, that that we're all desperately unclean, that we're not deserving of his grace, that we are beggars scrounging around for crumbs, but that if we see our state, if we come to him in humility, he gives us loaves and fish, he gives us a feast, he gives us himself, So come to the one who satisfies. And secondly, these passages should lead us to gratitude, not entitlement. Gratitude and not entitlement. Now I wonder if you noticed just how startling the disciples' response was to to Jesus wanting to feed the crowds. It was amazing, isn't it? It's it's literally as if they weren't even there back in chapter 6. It's amazing. Look at verse 4. And his disciples answered them, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's incredible, isn't it? You know, have, have they completely forgotten what's just happened? Have they got the most terrible memories ever? Well, here's why I think they don't have a clue here. I think they just could not possibly conceive of Jesus doing an Exodus-type miracle amongst the Gentiles. Remember, these are the last people, the very last people they'd expect Jesus to be for. These people are dogs. These are people under the table, far off from the promises of God. These people are sinners who are unclean, defiled on the inside and on the out. And Jesus is saying, I am here for them too. And if you're here this evening and you're not a Jew, but a follower of Jesus, then he is here for you too. 
it's probably not something we find all that difficult to understand, is it? You know, we, we just think, of course Jesus is for everyone. You know, we know that. But friends, see the great privilege that that is. For, for we are not entitled to Jesus' grace here. We, we are outsiders. And remarkably, Jesus has welcomed us in. And this is so different from the culture that we live in, isn't it? You know, we live in an entitlement culture. You know, every day there's, there's hundreds of things that I just expect to happen or, or have provided for me. Electricity, fuel in the car, Wi-Fi, food on the table, the, the list goes on. And when I don't get one of these things, my, my blood boils. That's when the pride, the envy, the slander, they, they rush straight out of my heart and onto my lips. And why? Because I see these things as deserved rather than privilege. And friends, it's, it's so easy for this to creep into how we feel about being God's children. Especially for those of us who, who have been Christians for a while, it, it's very easy to start going through the motions in the Christian life. You know, every Sunday at Trinity, we, we say the Lord's Prayer together in the morning. It, it's a wonderful thing to do as we join together in, in voice and, and pray to our Father. Praying to our Father that the Creator and Sustainer of everything the one who draws near and, and calls us his own, the Holy One who hates sin and does not repay us according to our iniquities, but shows compassion as a father does to his children. And yet it's so easy, isn't it, for, for those words just to slip off our tongues, to, to barely give them a second thought. Friends, Mark wants us to see that we have what we have in the Lord Jesus is all privilege and not entitlement. To close, I want to give you these words from, from a little excerpt in, in the appendix of, of John Stott's book, Problems of Christian Leadership. This is a story one of Stott's assistants told of him. Let me read it for us. Every morning at 11 a.m. sharp, I would bring him a cup of coffee. I would find him hunched over some letter or manuscript at his desk, consumed with the work before him, putting his unparalleled powers of concentration to whatever task was at hand. Not wanting to disturb him, I would quietly set the cup and saucer adjacent to his right hand, and oftentimes he would mumble a barely audible word of thanks. I'm not worthy. Initially, I thought this comment was amusing, but after a few months, I began to find it slightly bothersome. How could someone pronounce himself unworthy of an acidic cup of instant coffee? One morning, I was feeling a little cheeky, and when Uncle John mumbled his usual expression, I'm not worthy, I quipped back, oh, sure you are. Uncle John stopped, and I saw the powerful magnetic look of his concentration ease from the papers before him. He slowly raised his gaze and with a look of immense seriousness, yet boyish playfulness, he responded, you haven't got your theology of grace right. I laughed, grinned awkwardly, 
and then said, it's only a cup of coffee, Uncle John. As I turned round and headed back into the kitchen, I heard him mutter, it's just the thin end of the wedge. What was it that Stott understood? He understood that he was a beggar like the woman, that he was as desperate as the deaf and mute man, and that Jesus brought him complete satisfaction. May we always be marked by gratitude and not entitlement. Amen.